0: Welcome to the Cultivariable podcast. This is episode one. I'm Bill Whitson, owner of Cultivariable, and your host. Today I'll be talking with Nathan Kleinman of the Experimental Farm Network about participatory plant breeding, sustainable agriculture, and his own breeding work. Before we get to that, since this is our first episode, I want to give you some introduction. This podcast is focused on topics relevant to the freelance plant breeding community. If you aren't familiar with that term, you probably aren't alone. Even though I'm doing freelance plant breeding, I don't think I heard it described that way much prior to the past year. It's a useful term, though. It encompasses the world of plant breeding outside of academic and corporate breeding. We could lump those together and call it big plant breeding, since it's mostly aligned with big agriculture. The differences between big plant breeding and freelance plant breeding are not entirely clear-cut. There's certainly some overlap, but big plant breeding focuses mostly on commodity crops and the sort of vegetables that you buy at the grocery store. A lot of the goals of big plant breeding center on making vegetables more suitable for the supply chain, so more compatible with mechanized planting and harvest, longer storage life, resistance to handling damage, traits that are important to the production of processed foods, and of course flavor, color, and nutrition factor in there, but they're breeding for a lot of traits that aren't always readily compatible. In contrast, the freelance plant breeding community tends to focus on everything but those essentially commercial traits. Freelance breeders are more likely to be working on improved flavor, appearance, adaptation to specific climate regions, and improved performance for organic or other low-input growing practices. Also, freelance breeders are more likely to work with minor crops, the sorts of things that generally won't be found at, at, you know, at, a, at a chain grocery store, certainly. Uh, with the exception of the potato, I work almost exclusively with minor crops. I'm a freelance plant breeder, so I have a great interest in this subject, but I feel like I, I really only get the most superficial look at what others are doing, You know, most, mostly through social media. Occasionally I've read or listened to interviews with other breeders, and I always thought, you know, this is great, why, why isn't there more of this? And I kept kind of hoping that maybe somebody would start a podcast dedicated to this, but as time has gone on and that didn't happen, I started to think maybe I should give it a go. Uh, I have a computer and a microphone and a mouth, so how hard could it be? I have a few folks already signed up to do future episodes, and I'm guessing that I'll do an episode every week or two. I have a very long wish list of people that I'd like to talk to, and I'm guessing that list is only going to grow as I talk to them and I hear about all the other projects out there that I'm totally unaware of. There are a lot of interesting people out there doing really exciting work in and around the world of freelance plant breeding, and I, I hope that many of them will agree to come on. One of those interesting people doing exciting things is Nathan Kleinman with the Experimental Farm Network. I spent quite a bit of time thinking about who would really help to set the tone for this podcast. and Nathan came out at the top of the list. The Experimental Farm Network was started to encourage collaboration in the freelance plant breeding community, so I can't think of a better subject for our first episode. Nathan Kleiman, welcome to the Cultivariable podcast.
1: Thanks very much. Glad to be here. So,
0: Nathan, what is the Experimental Farm Network?
1: Sure. Um, The Experimental Farm Network, or ESN, is... uh a nonprofit cooperative that I started with my friend, Dusty Hins, in 2013 in Philadelphia. Um, It is a a collaborative plant breeding and sustainable ag research network. Um, Our main goal is to facilitate collaboration on plant breeding projects um, with a real focus on perennial crops that can be used as staple crops, um, things that can be used for climate change mitigation to get us off of our addiction to um, GMO corn and soy on a massive scale that's uh, really killing the planet. Bad for people, uh, consumers, bad for farm workers, and, uh, and and bad for all of us uh, because it adds to uh, climate change. So um, yeah, we uh, the the experimental farm network is uh, tech, the, the full name is technically the experimental farm network cooperative. That's the legal name in Pennsylvania, um, and we use experimental farm network as the the name for the website and uh, and shorthand for the organization. Um, the website is experimentalfarmnetwork.org, and it is um, and it's basically a, a social network, an open source network that uh, is, is our main tool for facilitating collaboration. It's been a long time coming. We, um, we're, we're still working on improving it and uh, expect to be for a long time. Um, but we, we started out um, just uh, f- recruiting people to, um, to organize projects and then matching them with people who had volunteered for us. We used a bunch of Google Forms, as, uh, as you well know, being, uh, being one of the first people to, uh, to sign up. Um, but we're, uh, we're, we've uh, really been hoping uh, that the website would get up and running as soon as, as, soon as it could so that uh, that takes us out of the picture to, to actually do the matching. People can, um, people can organize themselves, Anybody can sign up, create a profile, uh, put up a project that needs volunteers, and anybody in turn can sign up, create a profile, and volunteer for other people's projects.
0: Awesome. And yeah, it's a, it's a major leap forward, the new, the new website, certainly compared to the Google Forms days.
1: Um, <laughs> yes, indeed. What? Uh, yes, indeed.
0: Tell me about collaborative plant breeding. Where, where, did, where did this idea come
1: from? Um, great question. So there is um, there's a there's a school, an academic school of uh, thought that that talks a lot about participatory plant breeding. People who are professional plant breeders and uh, and researchers um, they they use this term participatory plant breeding to describe projects where farmers in, in particular where farmers are engaged in a plant breeding project. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they, they shorthand it to PPB participatory plant breeding and PPB projects are usually led by a university researcher and have, um, have a number of farmers participating, uh, often at varying levels. Sometimes they're doing all the same things. And, um, and it's a way to really, uh, to create innovation faster and to create results faster, because um, it's a lot easier when you have a lot more people participating, um, it's, a, it's easier to to find that needle in a haystack that's often what you're looking for in plant breeding. Um, I started thinking about it um, before I knew anything about this participatory plant breeding, I, I was, um, I've always been interested in in seeds. I've been a a gardener since I was a kid and uh, collected lots and lots of different heirloom seeds and tried to spread them around with my friends and neighbors uh, in suburban Philadelphia where I grew up. Um, But uh, in uh, 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey and New York and Connecticut, and uh, I got very involved through Occupy Sandy in doing hurricane recovery work. Um, mainly in New Jersey, uh, but also in New York. And, uh, you know, I really started thinking about climate change as a, uh, as a social justice issue. And my girlfriend at the time was really interested in, uh, in, in permaculture, which was something that I uh, didn't really know all that much about uh, the, as a concept. And she convinced me to go up to Quebec in 2013 while we were doing all of this Occupy Sandy work um, to take, a, take some days off, go up to Quebec, and uh, uh, go to the Northeast Permaculture Convergence. One of the speakers there was um, Eric Tonesmeyer, who uh, actually now has a project up on the EFN web page, which is really awesome. Um, and Eric did a talk on uh, I, I had never never met him before or heard of him, but he did a talk on perennial staple crops uh, perennial industrial crops rather and this this uh, this talk was really eye opening for me. I had known about perennial wheat and the kind of long um, long saga of attempts to develop perennial wheat um, but i hadn 't really thought much more about uh, other perennial staple crops that could really be uh, valuable for humanity um, and but need more work to actually become viable crops uh, so Eric at, at his talk talks about things like uh, like osage oranges which are you know also called hedge apple which is a really common plant all throughout the the east um, they're often grown as Hedge rows—they're really thorny. They make—they're also called monkey brains. That's what we called them when we were kids. They're these big green fruit, and uh, they're—they're—they're not uh, really—they're really sticky when you cut them open. They're really latexy. I knew that they were used. uh, People used to put them at the bottom of their doors in the winter to keep bugs from coming into their house, Um, and they have—they have other kind of folk uses like that. Uh, But Eric told me that they in that talk that they are that there's there's edible starch in there if they're processed and um, that the wood is really uh, is one of the hottest burning woods. And um, it's it's actually uh, it burns so hot kind of it can make little explosions. It's been known to blow out uh, the glass in the the little glass windows in in a furnace Um, and that. That's just one example of a plant that that could be used, could be grown on a much larger scale, could be used to create um, to create all kinds of different products. He talked about jojoba, um, I, I believe he talked about that in, in that uh, in that presentation. He talked about cramby, which is um, the genus includes uh, cramby maritima, maritima, which is sea kale. Which is a, a lot of people know it as a as a as a really great perennial vegetable, um, but there are annual types of cramby that are that are used as industrial oil seeds. They make an inedible oil, um, and there's the potential through crossbreeding potentially and through selection to create perennial oil seeds in this in this cramby genus. Um, he went through so many other different plants. I can't even remember all of them. Um, He's got, he's got great books that, that go uh, in detail into different perennial vegetables. He's got a great book called the carbon farming toolkit. Um, And he really, uh, really opened my eyes to the possibilities that are out there for developing perennial plants that could be used for climate change mitigation, specifically for, Carbon sequestration pumping carbon out of the atmosphere into the ground with long lived perennial plants uh, that can that can produce uh, crops and and um, other useful useful things that uh, otherwise we would be getting from sources that would uh, that that are would be causing uh, carbon emissions or pollution so um it was uh, because I was in the middle of doing this uh, this large grassroots hurricane recovery work at the same time. Um, I was really thinking, you know, Occupy Sandy. If you don't know much about it, m- mobilized really quickly after the storm. And while it had been um, it had been over a year since Occupy Wall Street started, and uh, all of uh, the majority of the camps had been dismantled by that point in in uh in, in, in police raids and and uh and sometimes through negotiations had been had been cleared out the network that um that created them the people who had met through those movements still still were very much in touch and uh even though it, there was not really a visible movement, it was really easy for people to quickly mobilize and get together and uh it was really amazing to be a part of something so big and effective. Um, I started thinking, how can we apply this same ethos to the problem of uh, developing perennial agriculture that can replace uh, annual agriculture, industrial agriculture? Um, and right after that, that presentation by, uh, by Eric uh, Tonesmeyer, I just had this I just had this idea. How about we have an experimental farm network, uh, and we try and get people collaborating online? and pretty much the idea evolved from there, although the the kernel was has was, has been pretty much the same since uh, since that day up in Quebec. Um, that was 2013 uh, i I sold my friend Dusty on the idea sometime in that fall. We had gotten to know each other through Occupy Vacant Lots in Philadelphia, which was a really cool offshoot of of Occupy Philly, uh, where we were taking uh, working in communities with uh, vacant lots and converting them into productive food-growing spaces. Uh, We decided we were going to start looking for land to get out of the city and do some farming on a bigger scale. I, I had a big seed collection already from... Uh, things that I had been growing in my backyard and having friends and neighbors grow around Philadelphia. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we ended up, we almost, we thought we were gonna land at a a property in Pennsylvania, but they backed out in the spring of, uh, 2014, uh, while we had 90 flats of seeds already started. And, uh, they decided, they decided they wanted to sell rather than rent their land and we couldn't afford it. So we ended up posting on Facebook, uh, we're desperate for land. Who's got leads out there for us? And um, somebody, uh, somebody posted it to GMO Free New Jersey. Somebody saw it there. And, um, and they, knew about a, they knew about this farm in South Jersey. Uh, and I got an email the next day from Sandy, the, the, one of the uh, owners of the farm, And it happened to be that I was driving down that next day to a a long-term recovery group meeting about Sandy recovery down in uh, Cumberland County, New Jersey, down along the Delaware Bay shore in a town that's actually called Bivalve, (laughs) B-I-V-A-L-V-E, where they used to take out boxcars, 80 boxcars a day of oysters in in its heyday um, from the Delaware Bay. And, uh, so I, I yeah talked to met up with them that next day and uh, and we hit it off and, and um, within a week uh, Dusty and I were living down there in a tent in a busted old RV and um, and we started uh, started farming full time um, and uh, the rest is uh, the rest is history we're now going into our 50, 50 year farming there at, at the Dietrichs property. Uh, we're also, as of uh, last year, we're farming at a, a pr- historic Jewish farming property that's about six miles away. Uh, the area, this area, was settled by a lot of uh, um, a lot of uh, Jewish refugees, and starting in the 1880s, uh, who were fleeing um, fleeing pogroms in, in Russia. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's been a really uh, really amazing ride we started selling seeds that, that, uh, that next spring, uh, that we had grown that first year, uh, originally, you know, initially on, uh, packets that we had hand labeled with our terrible handwriting with a little stamp with our address on it. And, um, and then we moved to, uh, moved to beautiful packets with artwork from our friend, Bree Barton, who's one of our board members. Uh, we, we, Organized as a nonprofit, we've got a really amazing board of directors, um, which, uh, which happens, it includes uh, William Woise Weaver, who's a, a really, really awesome author and seed saver, runs the Roughwood Seed Collection. And um, after meeting her at uh, Omega Institute, we got Vandana Shiva to join us as well. And we're really just, um, we're really excited about where we are right now. And having the website up has been has been uh, fantastic. So it's been uh, yeah, it's been a real, quite a ride. But uh, that that's that's where the that's where the collaborative uh, collaborative breeding came from. In answer to your question,
0: so basically all it took was a natural disaster and a presentation by Eric Tonsmeyer to create the EFN.
1: <laughs> so. More or less. Yep and uh and I, you know the uh, i i mentioned william wise weaver his his role as a mentor has been really valuable for for both of us me and Dusty. um it was uh it was that same summer that i uh, first met him i think in in 2013 um and that was through a chance a chance posting on a on a listserv called puffin the philadelphia urban farming network Um, by Owen Taylor, who used to be the the manager of the Roughwood Seed Collection and is himself now a a member of our board and has a great seed company called True Love Seeds, um, that Will Weaver was asking for volunteers. And I had known who William Weaver was for years. I knew he was in Pennsylvania, but he was like this seed celebrity in my mind. I didn't think I, you know, it didn't occur to me that I might ever meet this guy, let alone... um, work with him and and become uh become so close with him so that the fact that that happened around that same time was really uh really helped to help to have it all come together and then you know the the work that we were doing in urban farming as well was really uh was really pivotal um and uh you know so many amazing people in Philadelphia like uh, Katrina Baxter and um Folks at the at the uh, North Philly Peace Park, it's um, it's been uh, you know they 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 really inspired us and and made us realize um, how important the the broader food justice movement is and and food sovereignty. I mean in in, in places where um, places that are really food deserts and um, places where people are are uh, so alienated from food production, especially among communities where there's such a historical tradition in those communities of, uh, of agriculture. Um, it's really, uh, you know, that, that, that whole, uh, that whole movement really resonated with us. And, um, you know, we've been, uh, we've been really honored and, and, uh, gratified to be a part of it and to be able to help help in, in some ways. Did you, did you have a background in farming
0: before you launched into this?
1: Um, only as a gardener and as a seed saver, really just backyard stuff. Um, I spent, uh, I spent a summer in Italy when I was 19 years old with friends of my, uh, family, a, a good friend of my father's who I grew up with as a, as a ant figure, um, had, uh, had relatives in Italy who didn't speak any English and, you know, were basically peasant farmers in, in, in her description. Um, so I, I learned a lot from them spending the summer there on uh, terrace farms in the, uh, in the Cinque Terre region in, in Liguria, um, learning about how to cultivate grapes and uh, all kinds of perennial trees. And they, they just had such a div- amazing diversity of, of plants there. And, you know, being, being given, um, you know, some of their treasured family heirloom seeds. And, um, that, that was, uh, that was, that was a pivotal experience for me, but I I hadn't, it had never really occurred to me to that. I, that I would want to go into farming or that it was something that I should do. Uh, my academic background in, um, in college, was uh, was in foreign policy. I went to Georgetown uh, to the School of Foreign Service, studied diplomacy and and international affairs. Um, and a couple couple of years after that, I I started a master's program in um, archaeology and Native American history at the at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Um, and that uh, that experience, I ended up trying to do thesis research down in Oaxaca in 2006 and 2007. And um, there was a major uprising, a, a, a basically a general strike of, among teachers and indigenous people that took over the central, central part of Oaxaca City and also um, many places in the countryside as well. Uh, so I went down there to study you know, archival, archival material and rocks and dirt and bones. And I just, uh, I got, uh, swept up in, in what was happening with real life people. Um, and, uh, I, I never, never, never finished that thesis. And, um, it, it, it sparked, uh, it really got me, um, way more interested in politics and I, I got, um, I, after living in the Netherlands for a year until, uh, about August, 2007, I, I just decided that, uh, I had to go back to the States and and get involved in the election. I was, uh, it had reawakened my, uh, the political part of me. And, um, after eight years of, uh, George W. Bush in office, I, I wanted to come and, uh, get to work volunteering for a Democrat to, uh, to change the way things were going in the country and ended up working on, uh, Obama's campaign. Um, so that,
0: I mean, it's a really, it's a fascinating journey, I I think to go from not much of a background really in farming or, uh, or, uh, plant breeding to kind of, you know, saving the world, uh, through, through plant breeding.
1: Yeah, definitely not a, not a traditional one. And I, I, I don't think I ever would have predicted it myself, but, uh, but I'm really, uh, I'm really happy that life has led me to where it is, and you know, I, I really believe I've found my calling. I, I love working with plants. I, I love being out there farming. I, um, you know, I've loved plants, and love nature since I was a kid. But uh, you know, the 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 amazing diversity that exists out there, and that's that's at risk unless people work to preserve it is just staggering and uh it's inspired me to uh to just dive in and and i plan to spend the rest of my life doing this work uh even if i'm even if i'm doing other things i haven't quite managed to tame that uh that political animal inside me but um but i can't uh i I know i'm never going to stop farming
0: awesome can can you can you run us through some of the uh, some of the projects that are either live now with the with the experimental farm network or that or that have been in in
1: previous years? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the uh, some of the first projects that we that we um, started included the one that uh, the one that you organized, which was about Oca. Uh, which is a really awesome crop, as people don 't know about. I was just talking about it tonight, actually. Um, you know people see this oxalis growing around as a weed here, and most people don't know that there's that there's a domesticated type that makes these beautiful, delicious tubers as a staple crop down in uh down in the andes um, but it's incredibly difficult to grow in this in this part of the country in this part of the world um And, uh, and the work that you're doing, trying to breed all sorts of different ones is, is, uh, that, that can, that can thrive in, in this climate and, um, is exactly the kind of, uh, the kind of project that we're interested in doing out. I know it was, it was, uh, you probably got spotty results from most of your volunteers because including us who had lots of trouble getting it to survive our summer, um, that's really the big uh, way too... the big problem at the moment for
0: for Oka is simply the fact that it there's not enough uh, there's not enough diversity to select on in terms of climate tolerance yet. So I, I think yeah. there's going to be a, a future project through the EFN to 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 work on that again. But uh, but one conclusion was definitely that we just need um, we need a little more climate tolerance before it's going to be ready to kind of trial it out all over the country.
1: Yeah. Um, so one of the other projects that we have that I'm involved in and that we're actually having some, uh, having some, some success with is a perennial sorghum project. Um, sorghum is an African grain. It's, uh, it looks a lot like corn when it's growing. And then instead of, uh, making tassels up at the top and having ears on the, on the sides, it has a big seed head up at the top. Um, and the seeds are gluten-free they're rich in protein uh, compared to corn. The plant generally requires about one-seventh the water of corn, so it's much more drought-tolerant, tolerant to heat. Uh, it's a really amazing crop. And in the tropics, there's plenty of perennial sorghums. Uh, but in, um, in in temperate zones like ours, it's not something that can be grown as a perennial. Um but uh there are so there's some hope because there's a perennial species called Johnson grass that um some years ago people hybridized with domesticated sorghum to create uh to create a, a, a rudimentary perennial sorghum that that has bigger seeds much bigger than the weedy wild relative um but uh it can actually survive uh, winters up here. And it was the, the, we, we don't know a lot about the origin of where we got of of the seeds that we got. It was, it came to us with the name M61 from the folks at adaptive seeds. And they had gotten it from Tim Peters, who I believe had done a lot of the work on it, but I'm not sure where the origins of that are. And, um, and even speaking with Tim, I, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't clear on the, uh, where it where it came from um but uh having been given those seeds a a few year a couple years ago uh we planted them uh spring of 2016 and we had one plant survive that winter Uh, so last year in 2017 we had um we had this one beautiful perennial sorghum plant that came up and made a whole bunch of heads. Um, we planted a whole bunch more seeds from uh, other people who grew it out and sent us seeds from their best plants. So we're not sure if we're going to get some more perennial plants coming up this year. We're going to keep a close eye on all those beds where, where we had it planted last year, but I'm pretty sure that that plant that did survive the winter is going to be back. And, of course, we saved seeds from that one survivor plant, and uh, we'll be planting those all over the place and mailing those seeds to other people, and uh, that one plant is going to be the, the core of our uh, breeding and selection work uh, from here on out. Uh, if we get some more survivors, if we get some more populations that have that, that can survive our winter, I think we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to be really excited about that. Um, Perennial sorghum is something that the land Institute in, in um, Kansas has been working on for a long time. That's another organization that, that, um, you know, has, was a real inspiration for us and, and has been doing some really cool work on breeding perennials. Um, They got into it originally um, from the soil conservation angle before Climate change was even really considered a, a major threat to civilization, to the future. Um, but uh, obviously now people realize that. They've, they've released their first seeds out there, which is called kernza. It's a domesticated wheat uh, wheatgrass. It's not actually a wheat, but they've spent years and years Breeding for larger seeds of intermediate wheatgrass, which is a, a perennial wild relative of wheat, and uh, they've got they've they've got something now that uh, farmers are growing now all, all over the country. Um, they're starting to really scale it up. Mostly, it's being used in brewing. There's some people who are starting to work on it for um, baked for baking bread. Um, it's still much smaller than a wheat seed there's actually there there are perennial wheat hybrids that make bigger seeds but but have um, have other agronomic problems that that uh, that have prevented them from becoming um, widely grown but yeah perennial perennial wheat and perennial grains is really a is, is really a major um, major focus of, of these projects. Um, Another project that I'm interested in and that I've been involved with is uh, working on chinkapin chestnuts. That's a wild uh, species of chestnut that's native to the Southeast and is, uh, it's a smaller nut, but it's much less, uh, it's, it's it's much less um, susceptible to the chestnut blight that, uh, that kills the American chestnut. Um, similar to how it affects the American chestnut, the chinkapin chestnut, also called the Allegheny chinkapin, uh, or, and the Ozark chinkapin is a subspecies. Um, it, it will grow up for many, many years, and eventually the blight will knock down the branches, knock down the, the trunk, but uh, the roots will continue to send up new growth. Um, and while with American chestnuts, that'll happen and the, the trees will die back to the ground almost as soon as they reach sexual maturity, before they make any nuts or when they hardly have made any nuts, chickapins will produce for many, many years and can actually still make a, a, a large crop. The seeds are much smaller than, uh, than American chestnuts and, and much smaller in turn than uh, Asian chestnuts and European chestnuts. Um, but they're delicious. They're edible raw, and um, and there is some there is some genetic diversity there. There there's the potential to breed them uh, bigger. Before the blight hit, there were there, there's old uh, articles from agricultural journals about the, uh, the the breeding potential of Allegheny chinkapins. But when the blight hit, it, all of that work stopped. So. Very few people have done have been doing any work over the last hundred years to improve this really cool native uh, nut nut crop. So uh, we, we got we've got access to some really interesting populations, uh, including one that that we believe is a, a, a Nanticoke Indian food forest that still exists, that the, those chicken could have been planted five, six hundred years ago. Um, and you know, they've died back to the ground many times, but uh, they continue to grow and they continue to produce, um, and some of them have significantly larger seeds than the average. Uh, another guy down in Virginia um, who was a patent lawyer in Richmond spent 30 or 40 years working on chinkapins and, and, and made ha- had some, whether it's a, a hybrid with another species, we don't know, but develop some that are three or four times the size of uh, of the average chinkapin. So, you know, we think there's some, we think there's some, some really interesting work to be done there. And that's, that's another project that we've got up on the page. Um, I'm interested in May apples, which are, uh, which is a perennial forest dwelling plant. Makes an edible fruit, but it's, it's especially important because it has a toxin that is used as a chemotherapy agent. It's one, it was one of the first chemotherapy agents. So it's, uh, it's a medicinal plant that's incredibly powerful, and, um, and it's being over harvested. Uh, uh, wild relatives of it, uh, or relatives of it in Asia, are being over harvested to provide this potophyllin toxin. Uh, that's used in in Western medicine. So we're looking for um, varieties that are uh, significantly uh, faster growing, uh, perhaps larger roots, uh, higher content of podophyllin, so that they can be uh, that they can be used for medicine. But also ones that make more fruit, that make a lot of fruit, that regularly fruit every year, because the plant doesn't always do that. Uh, because it, yeah, it is a, it is a really cool, um, food crop. Uh, we got a couple of people working on, uh, rice projects, dryland rice for Northern cultivation and, uh, wetland rice, uh, also for Northern cultivation. Um, I'm working with, uh, tartary buckwheat, which is a, a different species than, than, uh, normal buckwheat. That's not a perennial crop, but it's a, uh, it's a it's a really interesting plant, really high in rutin, which is a antioxidant that people are paying, you know, 30 or $40 for a bottle of pills uh, with rutin in them, but they could be uh, making tea from this plant and getting just as much. Um, and, uh, oh, we're really, really excited about Chris Homanic's perennial kale project. Got some amazing, amazing diversity um in uh in, in perennial kale plants that you know that vary from something like a collard to something like a kale there's variegated pink and green ones dark purple ones uh and, and there's um the the goal of that project is to develop uh perennial kale that can be grown from seed and um and has uh you know has has really great qualities as food and, um, and is, is, uh, most importantly is, is perennial will, su- will survive the winter.
0: Do they currently survive at your farm?
1: Uh, we have had, uh, we have had challenges with the perennial kale because we get, um, we get, uh, harlequin bugs, but we have had them survive the winter. We've had a few survive the winter, um, and so we know it's possible and from the same breeding pool the same gene pool uh we've we we were actually given some plants that had survived multiple winters in Detroit Michigan wow so it's uh it, it's really extraordinary and it's um you know it's 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 not it's something that nobody's done before uh, nobody has ever brought together the diversity of perennial collards and kale's uh like Chris has and, um, you know, he's working out in Oregon, so it's really valuable to him as a plant breeder to be able to tap into a network of people around the country who can grow it in all kinds of different places and, um, and send him their best cuttings so that he can improve his breeding pool continually every year uh, until he gets exactly what he's looking for. And he's probably going to get plenty of cool things that he's not looking for, too. Of course,
0: yeah. I, I I've got to say, from the from the first moment I saw the Experimental Farm Network announced on Facebook, I, you know, I was I was blown away because, of course, that's that's a real problem I have. How do I find out if these plants that I have bred can survive in more difficult climates? Right here, I am sitting by myself, you know, near to the coast, pretty mild climate. The, the only way that, that I'll ever know if these plants uh, can, can survive in, in other climates is to is to either sell them to someone and then find out that they died or or uh, you know recruit a group of volunteers and to have uh, you know to have all of that uh, infrastructure already laid out to be able to to, to recruit pe- people to do that and report it's just, is just is, uh, is invaluable
1: Thanks yeah and I you know one of the things that we really w- hope to achieve with the with the website, is to get a real core group of people who are continually vetted by the network so that, you know, you're not, if you're, if you're sending out material to people, you know, as you did the first time, uh, it's just a a bunch of people who've signed up. We don't know anything about them, just whatever they've self-reported. But after we start working together and people have a profile and it's there for years, um, We'll, we, we plan to add, um, to add the ability to uh, rank, to rate people when, who you've worked with. You know, if you send somebody your seeds and they don't respond and you get nothing back from them, you give them a terrible rating and they're not going to get sent cool seeds from other people before. But somebody does a really good job. They're really communicative. They send you pictures. They grow the seeds well. Um, that's the person who's going to get a high rating and they're the one who's going to be picked for a future project that they sign up for. So, you know, in the beginning, it's taken a leap of faith and, uh, you know, we're really grateful for people like you who, who've been willing to do that and, and people like Chris and, um, and, uh, Telsing Andrews up in, up in Ottawa. Um, and, uh, Carol depi, who's a who's an author who who, who did a project with, through us before we had the website up, um, trying to trial her um, popping chickpea around the country. Uh, we're just so you know we're so grateful that folks have been willing to do that, and we really hope that this website, as it uh, as it continues and grows and expands, that that we can we can really build a, a strong vetted crew. Of hundreds, one day maybe thousands of people around the country, maybe even around the world, who are um, who are competent and trustworthy, to uh, to be to be entrusted with, you know, some really rare germplasm. In a lot of cases,
0: speaking of uh, of rare germplasm, you uh, it, it looks like you've done a fair bit of work with the with the USDA uh, and the, the NPGS what what uh what kinds of materials have you received from them and how's that uh how's that relationship uh, working for you
1: uh it's been really great the 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 npgs that's the national plant germplasm system which is under the agricultural research service and part of the usda the department of agriculture um, is uh it, it's our national system of gene banks around the country and there are dozens of them um and they maintain close to a million different individual accessions of, uh, of plants, maybe over a million. I'm, I, I don't even, I'm not even sure that, uh, that, that, that there is a number out there. Um, the, uh, the USCA has sent us, I, I, w- I was requesting seeds from them from, uh, starting years before I, um, before we started the experimental farm network i was doing it um under the auspices of a small organization that i started which we called the baderwood cultural heritage garden project and it was you know basically people growing in their backyards trying to preserve um some rare seeds that were indigenous to our area um i i I, it really i i got to know the npgs because I was looking for the plants that had been grown by Lenape people in the Philadelphia area, before Europeans arrived. Uh, and I was trying to find where I I was trying to find the beans and corn and squash that, that were grown. Um, and I, after I, I was a member of seed savers exchange, I found somebody who had the, uh, one of the Lenape corns. I, Wrote, I sent my $3 and wrote a letter to, to get a, get the seeds, and I waited months and months, and eventually I got a letter that said, sorry, we're out of them. We, we, we don't have any more to share, but uh, what we do have is um, this Shawnee blue that this guy had been working on, and he said that he was basically trying to select blue corn from... Uh, Shawnee white, which was a white corn that had a few blue kernels on it. And he'd gotten it to where it was about 50% white, 50% blue. Uh, But anyway, this guy said, you should check the USDA. I'm pretty sure they have it. So that was the first time I went looking for these seeds. And I found, sure enough, the USDA had not just Lenape seeds, but hundreds of thousands of other seeds. Um, I typed the name of the town where I grew up, Jenkintown, and just out of curiosity, into the search, and sure enough, there was a pear that came up, the Tyson pear that was found in the hedgerow of Jonathan Tyson in 1794, and what became a famous pear in the in the 19th century. Who knew uh, from from little old Jenkintown, Pennsylvania? Uh, and I just it just was mind boggling, and I I kind of went crazy uh, requesting all sorts of seeds and um, the using this organization as my, as the entity that I requested through. Sometimes I'd get pushback. They say, we don't send seeds to people to grow in their backyard. And I'd say, well, listen, we're, you know, we're doing this for an educational project and yada, yada, yada. Um, and I, usually they sent them to me, but once we started the experimental farm network and, you know, explained every time we made a request exactly what we we're doing we we got very we've got much less pushback from them and and they've been they've been really free with uh sending us this material um they they're supposed to send seeds or bulbs or cuttings uh or rhizomes or or baby plants uh, little uh plant clones to anybody with a legitimate research breeding or educational purpose so that's um you know it's 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 uh it's not as restrictive as most people assume um, it, it is a lot of work for them, and they are underfunded and understaffed um there's it, it's a it's a real crime what's been what's been done to the n p g s but nevertheless they're amazing people doing amazing work and uh and they've kept so many so many varieties, so many land races, so many different things alive that otherwise would be, you know, would not exist anymore. Um, so we, uh, because of my interest in uh, in the rest of the world, I, I started requesting a lot of plants from areas that are under threat, whether by war or uh, sea level rise or um, economic out-migration, places like Syria Iraq and Afghanistan, or the Maldives, uh, or Moldova, uh, South Sudan. Um, and, uh, you know, there are seeds in this, in, in this collection from all of those places around the world. The government has sent plant explorers, they call them, all around the world for over 100 years now. Uh, and they've collected donations from other people, from people at uh, at embassies and at uh, at national institutions in other countries um, so there's really a, a, an amazing diversity out there and it's so critical that people grow these plants because they're not doing any good just sitting in a freezer especially with the way the climate's changing these plants need to be grown out they need to be adapted to uh, to uh, this cl- changing climate you know if you take a plant that was from Philadelphia fifty years ago and try and grow it in in Philadelphia now that's just been sitting in a freezer for fifty years it might it very well might not work because the climate has changed so much in that time um you know it might do uh it might do fine in uh Boston now or something but um and it's getting even more extreme as as things change and and you know, annual plants in a lot of ways adapt faster. Perennial plants are are much slower to adapt, and and there's much less diversity in a lot of these perennial plants. So it's even more important that we uh, not only that we utilize the plants that are in the gene bank, but that we continue to um, to collect plants from the wild, from uh, from traditional farming societies, uh, and that and that we. Um, people continue to donate plants to the NPGS. I mean, they're continually accepting new accessions. So um, that is uh, something we've, we've, we've tried to proselytize about as, as much as possible. And, you know, we've gotten some pushback from a few people, but n- not at all. I've gotten nothing from, uh, from actual people involved. In the NPGS, nobody has said to me, "Hey, stop telling people about this. We're we're getting too many requests." Uh, I mean, they want this stuff to get out there. They know that it's it it needs to be used. I mean, I've had people I've had some of the curators of these collections call me uh, after they get the request because they're so excited that somebody's actually interested in it. Like the Hohoba, um, or you know, the people people who maintain the sweet potatoes will call and say, "Hey, are you sure you're?" You're up for this. You know, you're going to be getting a little uh, test tube with a tiny tissue cultured sweet potato in it. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's really, it's really cool how passionate people are about it. Um, I, I had the pleasure of uh, touring around the Corvallis uh, Clonal Germplasm Repository, which is part of NPGS in Oregon um, back in February when I was out there for the Organic Seed Alliance, uh, Organic Seed Conference. And they're they're maintaining so many amazing plants there in at, at Corvallis. I mean, they've got like I think like 600 different varieties of hops, wow. um, and and you know hundreds of different types of blueberries and wild blueberry relatives, including ones from Vietnam. And and you know the uh, some of the some of those genes are why we are able to have blueberries year-round because they've made uh, low chill blueberries that can survive uh that, that can you know survive living in California with a warm California winter and still produce fruit uh year after year um, it's uh it's really uh amazing work and you know the the budget that president Trump uh tried to get through but I I believe that Congress largely kept this funding in place he was proposing cutting the, the, um, the station where they maintain chocolate and coffee. Uh, I don't think people would have been too happy about that, especially with, uh, again, because these, these are long-lived perennial plants. They are very susceptible to the, the changes in the climate. So it's so important that we, that we maintain this diversity and expand it and continually work with it
0: yeah i can't imagine what what would happen if uh, you really cut funding for uh, for a particular gene bank i mean uh, where does all that stuff go that
1: that would be exactly a, that would
0: that's i mean really a disaster
1: absolutely yeah we 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 told them uh when we were there in corvallis we said hey if they ever cut this stuff you just let us know we'll uh we'll organize a caravan and you know we got pickup trucks to come and start dragging stuff away because this stuff has got to be maintained. And, and, you know, even the, the government, the government data, the government gene bank is one thing, but there is so much diversity out there that's never been collected by the government and, and species that the government isn't even interested in, you know, that they don't have the capacity to deal with. Um, There are, uh, you know, there's the, the, they hardly have any, um, they hardly have any uh, chestnuts compared to the, the amazing diversity that's out there. Or uh, so many different nuts and so many different tropical plants that, you know, maybe they have one collection of, they have one accession of, um, that, uh, you know, there's just, we need so much more. Uh, you know, we, you, you and I share an interest in, uh, in, in, in tartar bread plant, another one of those crambies. And uh, the government has, like, three or four accessions, Um, and yet we know that there's uh, an immensity of diversity out there. Um, And actually, that is one thing that uh, that the the government is willing to, when they have the funding for it, if you submit a project, if you you see a hole in the collection um, and you believe that you know where to go find it on the planet, um, they, they do fund expeditions to this day, uh, sometimes led by, you know, people like us. Uh, it's, it's easier to get funding when you've got somebody with a Ph.D. involved in the project as well, um, but uh, or, you know, affiliation with a university. Um, but they'll send teams of people around the world to, uh, to collect plants in a particular place. Or, or a particular type of plant.
0: That's awesome. And, and it's a great opportunity really, I think for, for both you and the USDA to work together because you can, you can kind of, uh, act as an intermediary to introduce some of these crops to people who really might not be up to the task of making requests from, from gene banks in order to get them and start working with them.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're real. One of the projects we have up on the EFN page is just, uh, it, there's a picture of, a. Uh, some beautiful lima beans that we got from the usda actually that are from from ethiopia that are just stunningly beautiful and it just says efn rare seed saving and increases so people who volunteer for that will be mailed seeds or other plant material just to grow out and get more seeds and send it back and part of that's you know testing those people to to see if they can if they know what they're doing but it's also in order to act as we, as we grow and as we, we get this core of people to actually, uh, you know, increase those seeds, to, to increase the diversity, to try them out in other places and get them out there, uh, get them out there in the country and in the world.
0: So, if someone wants to get involved with the EFN, how do they go about that? And, and also, what kinds of help do you need and what, what can people do to help, uh, help move this along?
1: Uh, well, we really need, we, we want people to sign up on the website. Um, all you have to do is create a profile. It's, uh, it's, it's real easy. Um, and then you can volunteer for projects. We want people, especially who are doing this kind of work themselves in their backyards or in their farms, who are, who are trying their hand at plant breeding and, and want some help to put up a project. We, at the moment, we only have I think 14 projects up there, which is which is great. You know, it's way better than where we started out. But you know, we would love to have 100 projects up there, um, and uh, you know, that requires people to to take a leap of faith. And and maybe the first year or two, you might be sending seeds to volunteers who are or, or seeds or other plant material to to people who. Um, May not do a very good job, but you know even if you send with, with all of these things, I know as a plant breeder, I often end up with with a hundred times more seeds than I'm able to use than I'm able to to actually um, evaluate myself, so yeah, I might be sending seeds out I might be sending a thousand seeds out to um a hundred people, and I might only get seeds back from ten of those people, but Still, that's 10 times more than I was going to get myself if I, uh, you know, if I only grew 10 seeds or, or whatever, um, or, you know, at, at, at orders of magnitude, it's, uh, it's really, uh, it's, it's really, it's really been exciting for us to, to uh, start meeting people. And we, we, we sell seeds as well to raise money for the nonprofit. So people who are, you know, are not confident to do plant breeding or, or don't have the time or the space, but maybe you are interested in, you know, you do gardening and you want to grow seeds yourself. We're selling a lot of really interesting seeds that have been successful for us, many of which were, um, were seeds that we got from the USDA, uh, seeds that we got from, from all other kinds of interesting places. Um, so we really, you know, are in, encouraging people to, to buy seeds from our site, to support the nonprofit. Um, and, uh, some of the seeds that we sell are actually involved in the project. You can, yeah, in order to participate in, in Chris's perennial kale project, you actually have got to buy the seeds. Um, and, and part of that is, you know, we, we have a, Chris is a really busy guy. He, he doesn't want to be mailing out seeds to everybody who signs up for the project. Uh, but we, you know, we, we asked him to to do that because we think it's a, um, it's a, it's a good way because that project is so popular. Uh, it steers a lot more people to, to the site. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we are, we are a nonprofit. We, we haven't really gotten to the point where we're, um, raising enough money to pay ourselves, but we'll we're, we're find other ways to, uh, to survive and, um, We've been. Uh, we're now with seed sales to the point where we are starting to get some 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 serious money coming in um, that you know allows us to at least break even and, and maybe a little bit more as we and to continue expanding um, and buying equipment and, and improving our farming operations. So we're uh, uh, we also do sell some seeds wholesale through uh, through some other seed companies. And that's been, a, that's been a really useful source of revenue. So, yeah, buying seeds uh, from us, signing up on the website, talking about it, spreading the word, um, all of that's really, uh, really valuable for us um, and, uh, and, and would be a huge help.
0: Awesome. So since I invited you to come on, uh, there's been a big change in your life. You want to uh, talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, yeah. I um, Like I mentioned earlier, I have not been able to tame the political animal in me, and uh, I decided to run for Congress. Um, I'm really passionate about a whole range of political issues, so I filed papers on Monday to run for Congress on the Democratic uh, at the, in the democratic primary here in New Jersey's second congressional district, where I've been living now for, uh, for four years. Um, it's a really amazing district. It covers uh, a huge area, uh, almost all of the uh, far Southern New Jersey. It includes Atlantic City, Ocean City, and Cape May along the, along the, uh, along the shore. It includes Uh, almost all of the Delaware Bay shore, including bivalve, which I mentioned, towns like Fortescue, um, Morris river, and uh, also includes some, uh, uh, some, some smaller old industrial cities like uh, Bridgeton and Millville, Salem um, and, uh, and Vineland, which has a, has a rich agricultural history. The whole area has a really rich agricultural history. Um, I've really, uh, you know, I've, 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 uh, loved this area since I was a kid coming to the Jersey shore and camping in the Pine Barrens, uh, a huge part of the district is, is Pine Barrens. And, um, I, I really, uh, in the last four years and, and for a year doing Sandy recovery work before that, I've really, uh, I've really fallen in love with the people of this district as well. Um, it's uh, it's an incredibly diverse district uh economically and racially and religiously it's uh there are there are really amazing people here um and it would be a, an absolute honor to represent them in congress uh the 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 seat is an open seat there's a moderate republican who's retiring frank Lobiondo, um and uh, unfortunately, the endorsed Democratic candidate is uh, a really conservative guy who I, I just believe is out of step with the Democratic Party and, and out of step with the with the country on so many different issues. Um, the guy's uh, taken money from the NRA. Uh, he has a 100 percent rating from them. He voted against gay marriage just a few years ago. Um, He's, uh, he's really a, a conservative guy, and um, in this election, when uh, I believe there's going to be a, a, a huge backlash against the uh, extreme right-wing policies of Donald Trump and the, and the Republicans in Congress, um, I think the Democrats can afford to nominate some progressive people, especially in a real swing district like this one, uh, which... Uh, President Obama won by over eight points in 2012, and then Trump won by less than five points in 2016. So it really is the definition of a swing district. The congressional representation has gone back and forth um, for since about the 1960s. It's gone from Republican to Democrat to Republican to Democrat. Now there's a Republican, so we're due for a Democrat. and I think that, uh, I think that my campaign can resonate with people. I, 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 plan to continue farming as much as possible. Um, I think that people are no longer interested in career politicians. They want someone who's going to keep a foot in the real world. And, uh, um, there was a time when we had lots and lots of farmers in, uh, serving in Congress, um, and uh, I, I think it would be uh, it would be great for us to get back to having real citizen legislators and not just uh, not just career politicians, not just super wealthy people who uh, who are able to buy seats and um, take their connections and, and turn them into uh, lifelong posts. In I really strongly believe that uh, things have got to change. Um, there's two months before this election. I'm I'm a pretty last-minute entrant into the race, but uh, I believe that my message can resonate. I'm willing to work really hard to get it out there, and um, and I believe I can win.
0: And so if people want to help you out with this, how do they get in touch with you?
1: Um, they will. Uh, the site's not up yet, but they'll be able to go to natureforcongress.com. And uh, and that will be the be- that'll be the best way. Um, for now, they can find me on Facebook as well, where I'm I'm uh, Nate Kleinman. Uh, that's K L E I N M uh, A N. But yeah, it's going to be Nate for Congress. N A T E. Um, I just uh, I just set up my bank account today, so pretty soon they'll be able to donate through Act Blue, uh, which is a which is a. Uh, website that is used by uh, Democratic uh, candidates for fundraising.
0: All right. Nathan Kleiman, this has been fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show, and uh, I hope we can have you on again in the future. And I hope you enjoyed it's it. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Uh sure did. Thanks so much, Bill. I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it again. All
0: right. That's it for this episode. Next time, we're going to talk potatoes with Curzio Caravati of the Kenosha Potato Project, and I'm really looking forward to it. Until then, keep an eye out at uh, cultivariable.com slash podcast or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks.